All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Why did Republicans win in Virginia and possibly just as importantly, why did Democrats lose in Virginia? So for two weeks now, I've been promising you that I was gonna bring on a subject matter expert in predicting elections. Today I have Christian Hines, who was the Virginia Public Access Program's Pundit of the Year. And I think as far as we know this year, you had the most accurate prediction for Glenn Youngkin's numbers. You came within 0.05% of what the actual numbers would be. And this is not something he did like five minutes before, a day before you predicted this, within 0.05% of numbers. So we have Christian Heinzer, he knows what he's talking about, I'm breaking down numbers, and he's gonna help us kind of walk through a couple of things. Uh, some of it is just gonna be kind of the numbers, what happened with early voting, with absentees, election day voting. And then some of it too is gonna be some analysis on why do we think it turned out the way that it did? So we have all of that coming up now on Making the Argument, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. All right, Christian, if I haven't already like, like blown up your head enough with your amazing you know, political prognostications, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna give one, I'm gonna throw one more thing out there. So before anybody thinks, okay, we're bringing Christian on because he's really good at predicting Republican victories, I would actually say your specialty is predicting Republican losses, because I remember back in 2017 when Republicans had a 64-seat majority, and, and it looked like we were just going to be in the ascendancy forever, and you said back then, we're going to lose 12 to 15 seats within the next like three to four years. And I was like, oh, that's garbage. There's no way that's going to happen. And then... What was it, like two years later, a year later, we lost 15 yeah. seats. So the, the the story was, it was, gosh, it was when I was still in college. It, it, it was a conversation, actually, that we had on Facebook in mm -hmm. 2014. Yeah, It was um, at the time when Republicans had effectively a supermajority in the House of Delegates. They either had 67 seats or 66 seats. I can't remember the exact number, but... Um, and I remember making the statement that in the 2020s, Virginia will flip blue at the state level and Democrats will take over the legislature. And I was skeptical. <laughs> it, yes. <laughs> and, and I remember you saying like, you know, aren't you a little bit too young to be that pessimistic? And, and then fast forward just a few years later to the 2017 cycle and I, I was publicly predicting, uh, much to the dismay of my fellow Republicans, that we were going to lose in the neighborhood of 13 to 14 seats. And mm -hmm. We ended up losing 15 that year, yeah. and I remember, you know, people basically being like, "You're crazy." And I, I oh, I, Democrats <laughs> thought that was crazy. Like <laughs> yeah. I was talking to some of my colleagues in the General Assembly on some of the seats that you predicted we would lose, and they were like, "Yeah, no, there's no way you guys are losing that one." <laughs> and then we did. Yeah, I, I, it was a terrible year. It was a horrible mm -hmm. year for Republicans, and I was disappointed. I mean, I got 
Out of 100 seats in the House of Delegates that year, I called 99 of them correctly. The one seat that I got wrong was Rocky Holcomb's in Virginia Beach. I thought that we would hold that seat. And yeah. So things were actually worse than even I thought would happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I guess that, that, that started that process of me getting, like, really interested into studying elections and trying to predict the outcome ahead mm -hmm. of time and modeling the results and stuff like that. And I carried that over to 2018. That was also a heartbreaker of a year. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we got blown out of the water at the statewide level and we lost three congressional seats, including our Congressman Dave Bratt. Mm -hmm. um, the reason I won the VPAP contest that year was I predicted that Dave would lose and mm -hmm. I, I didn't enjoy doing that, no, right? No, I mean, no, I was no. a huge supporter of Dave going back to when he first ran for Congress. And, but that, that's the thing. It, if you want to be a, a, an honest pundit, and I know that that might sound like an oxymoron, but like, if you want to do this right, you have to take your, you know, what you wish to happen, you have to set that aside mm -hmm. and just look at the data and, and go with, you know, the numbers that you're seeing and ultimately go with your gut. And well, and let me start with it, because that's going to be one of the things that people watch. Obviously, most of the people that watch this podcast, listen to this podcast, are most people are coming from a conservative mindset. And so they want to look at these things optimistically. And the reason why I wanted you to talk about what happened within Virginia is for a couple of reasons. One, you, you do look at it. It's not, like, it's not like you're neutral within these races. You have people that you want to win. You, you, you support conservative candidates. But by the same token, you're, you're very passionate about the data says what it does, and it doesn't say what it doesn't say. Yeah. And you know, again, as conservatives, we're supposed to be married to this idea of the truth. If something is true, then it's true, and we don't get to you know, pretend that it isn't. And so I, I have a feeling as we go through this analysis, you're going to come up to certain conclusions based off the data that people won't like. But the bottom line is, if you don't know, then you, you can't improve. So here's what I want to ask. So you, you, did a, you did a really good job predicting things that you know, were going to happen back in you know, 2017, um, you know, 2019, et cetera. And then we move in, and, and not only do we have you know, a, a crazy presidential year election with, with Joe Biden, with uh, Donald Trump, but we have COVID. And so now all of a sudden you have states all over the country changing their voting laws. And one of the biggest things they did was drastically extend mail-in voting and early voting. And this was something that I would say, especially in Virginia during the presidential year election, just completely caught us off guard with respect to the importance of early voting. So if, if you could tell us a little bit this year, like when you, when you talk about your model, because I would say that you know, three or four years ago, you were looking at a lot of data and you were putting together really good conclusions, but you've actually professionalized a lot of that process through data analysis, analysis and modeling. So without giving away like trade secrets here, can you tell us a little bit about how do you analyze this data in order to come up with the sort of predictions that you did this year? Yeah, so... Um, I mean, as you pointed out, last year was just a, you know, so many states changed their election laws. And, and not only that, I mean, Virginia was moving in that direction after Democrats took over in 2019 anyway. They were pushing, making it easier for early voting, mm -hmm. right? And um, I think that, that one of the biggest things that helped me, you know, create the model that I used to, to predict the results in 2021 in Virginia was I start with actual early voting numbers. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's something that you don't have to like guesstimate or try to predict. You can just pull the actual numbers. Now, that's not going to tell you how they voted, but mm -hmm. you're going to have a hard number every single day or every couple of days. The Department of uh, Elections is going to update how many ballots have been cast early. What method have they been cast? Have they been received in the mail? Have they been cast in person? 
like you don't have to guess that. Mm -hmm. You do have to guess how you think those are being broken down in terms of a partisanship basis. But my model starts with early voting numbers because that's the one thing out of the entire election cycle that there's no guesswork involved. You just know that you know X number of votes have been cast by mm -hmm. this date. And so that's where I begin the process. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, in Virginia last year, it was something like two thirds of every single ballot that was cast was cast early. So let me, let me ask you about that because in, yeah, in 2020, from everything I saw, Republicans got crushed in early voting. Like it wasn't close. And, and a lot of people were frustrated because on election day, when they were counting those numbers first, it looked like we were just, I mean, we were crushing it. Um, and they actually changed something this year because it used to be that they saved all of the early votes for later, which seemed kind of counterintuitive and it led to a lot of conf confusion. This year, they got those votes out a lot earlier. What did you see in the difference between Democrat, Republican, early voting numbers 2020, early voting numbers 2021 in Virginia? I think that uh, two, two things. So one, it was, first off, it was much more even. Mm -hmm. um, my model ended up uh, concluding by election day that the early vote margin was definitely in favor of, of the McAuliffe campaign and, and the Democrats, but not nearly to the degree that it was last year. Mm -hmm. And not only that, um, there were a lot less votes that were cast. Now, it's still a substantial number. It was over a million early votes cast. But last year, again, it was two-thirds of all votes ever cast in that race uh, for president and for the congressional races were cast early. And this time around, it was less than 50%. Mm -hmm. So not only was there a, a pullback from the number of people voting early, still substantially more than pre-COVID, but not as much as 2020. So that, that was one part of it. But the other part was that Republicans just, they did a much better job getting their base to vote early. Last cycle, it was there was a lot of suspicion for Republicans for voting early because traditionally Republicans always vote on election day. Yeah. We always have. It's like a tradition. Yes, yeah. I've always voted on election mm -hmm. day, and um, this year, you know, we got crushed in Virginia. Mm -hmm. I mean, we didn't pick up a single congressional seat. We got blown out of the water at the presidential level, and this time around, I think Republicans were were finally like, you know, the reason that we got blown out of the water last year was we didn't get our base to vote early. Mm -hmm. And, and rightfully so, because of a lot of these changes, our base was, was really skeptical of the process. Mm -hmm. But um, we did a really good job convincing our base and explaining, if you cast your vote early, mm -hmm. there's no possible way that it can be you know, fraudulently taken nobody's from you. Nobody's ordering an absentee yes. in your name. Nobody's yeah. ordering an absentee from your name. You're not gonna show up mm -hmm. to vote on election day and be told that you know your vote's already been cast mm -hmm. and you're confused, Why? how could that be? I haven't voted yet. Mm -hmm. and, and we explained that it's it's a really simple process. We got a lot of our, our, our base to vote in person early. Mm -hmm. I know that in Culpeper, we actually won mm -hmm. the in-person early vote. Yeah. And we never do that in elections, but this mm -hmm. cycle we actually did. And so. I think that part of the reason that Youngkin was able, from just a, a statistical analytical side, not looking at the philosophy, but yeah. just the numbers, part of the reason that Youngkin and Sears and Mieres were able to, to pull off this upset victory was because a large chunk of the Republican base was able to relatively keep even with the Democrats mm -hmm. in early voting. And then as usual, we completely yeah, you know, knocked it out of the park on election day. So that, that begs another question. So we, we did better on the early voting across the board. Um, because yeah, early voting was not something, I mean, I remember when I was talking to voters, a lot of them was like, no, I vote on election day. I'm like, you know what? I've always done the same thing. However, hear me out. If you have concerns about X, Y, or Z, this actually might be a good solution for you. And, and I, you could see people's mindsets being changed. And, and I think that helped. Um, the other thing is, is obviously when you look at like the news cycle, I am so used to Republicans getting crushed the last two weeks within the news cycle either because of something legitimate or just imagined, right? It's, it's the media spin. 
And this time, it seemed like between statements McAuliffe made, and we all know like the big one is right, like I don't think parents should be telling schools what to teach. Like holy crap, at a time with everything that was going on in Loudoun and Fairfax and even other places, that was just a totally tone deaf thing to say. And what I was shocked about that is that I think Terry believes that, but I never expected him to actually say the quiet part out loud. But with that causes me to want to do is look at specifically Loudon and Fairfax, and especially Loudon. Like these trended. And I think there was a lot of people that expected to wake up on election day, and if Glenn Young can win, they kind of assumed that, oh, he must have won Loudon. Not only did he not win Loudon, like it wasn't that close. Yeah, you so, lost it by about 10 points. Yeah, so a lot of people look at that, it seems counterintuitive, right? Like, how did he pull off a win if he still lost so bad in Loudoun County, which was a county the last time we won the governorship, we won Loudoun. So what, what do you think happened in places like Loudoun County and Fairfax that potentially contributed to his victory, whether it was things going on there that affected him in other parts of the state, or, or how his numbers, even if they weren't great, might have been proved there? Well, I, I think it's kind of two different stories with Loudon and Fairfax. With Loudon, you had the parent revolt with mm-hmm. the the massive scandal with the board of um, the, the school board in Loudon County. Um, you know, the education issue was was front and center in Loudon. And granted, mm-hmm. it was front and center everywhere, but spe- Loudon was ground zero for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that that one of the things that Youngkin was able to do in Loudon was to some degree turn the clock back. Mm-hmm. Not entirely. He didn't win the county like Gillespie did in 2014 when he came just shy of uh, um, pulling off an upset against Mark Warner for U.S. Senate. And he certainly didn't win the county in a landslide like Bob McDonald did in 2009. But um, Loudon did shift over 10 points to the right mm-hmm. um, between 2020 and 2021. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that, that part of the reason, probably the plurality reason in Loudon was the education issue. Mm-hmm. Youngkin was able to tap into the, the, those suburban parents or the ones that lived in rural western Loudon that felt like they were being excluded from the school process, had no say in their child's education. And in some cases, I mean, the, the school board there was was openly targeting parents. And mm-hmm. and I remember there was this huge scandal with the school board, um, you know, having this, uh, I think it was a secret Facebook group where they were like yeah. sharing information. And yeah. all of that blew up, plus McAuliffe's comments. Mm-hmm. Those two things weren't necessarily interrelated, but the electorate looked at those two things that were happening separately yeah. at the same time. The situation in Loudoun with the school board and McAuliffe's comments on education, mm-hmm. and they just put those two together and were like, we, we can't vote for this guy. Well, and I, what I think is interesting about this too, and, and part of this is just my opinion, I'd, I'd be interested to hear what your take is on it. You know, obviously some things like when, when Mr. Smith, right, got arrested at the Loudoun school board meeting, and the Department of Justice and the mainstream media ran with this idea that this was like domestic yeah. terrorism and these parents were you know, violent and you know, how, how horrible is all this and the DOJ was gonna get involved. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it comes out that, okay, the reason he's mad is because his daughter was raped in a public school bathroom and he's sitting there listening to the Board of Supervisors say, we don't have any cases of sexual assault. Oh, not only that, he was being told that he was making it up. Yeah. And yeah. naturally he reacted like any father would if yeah. they're being publicly told in front of a school board meeting that you're lying about well, your and, daughter's rape. And if it wasn't, it, and, and let's be let's be honest here, if it wasn't for the fact that Daily Wire had started investigative reporting, I mean, because that was the only person that seemed to like actually go to this guy and be like, hey, why'd you get so mad? Right? Like yeah. that, that was the magical question that was asked. It was someone actually doing what you would have considered to be typical journalism. And then all of a sudden when that story broke, 
That opened up a whole slew of other issues. I mean, bills that Mike Mullins, Delegate Mullins had carried that actually reduced the reporting requirements on behalf of school administrators. Yeah, the, uh, HB 250, 257, 257 yeah. But, but, but so here's my theory, is that I think a lot of parents saw what was going on in Loudoun. And, and honestly, some of the things that was going on in Fairfax too that came a little bit later in the race. So this is everything from like sexually explicit material. And, and the left tried to make this all out as you we're trying to ban books when in reality, the bill that we were talking about just required parental notif notification. No banning, no mm -hmm. getting, parental notification, that was it. And then you also had adjustments. Um, I talked to a lot of parents where they weren't focused on CRT, they weren't focused on the sexual assault as much, they weren't even focused on the sexually explicit materials. They were concerned about that, but the thing that first woke them up to the issue was the fact that the standards had changed drastically on advanced placement classes and Thomas Jefferson High School. And so these were parents that very well could have voted for Joe Biden in 2020. Many of them did. Yeah, and they were upset about what was going on. And so when they voiced their concerns, instead of being told, well, okay, let's work through this or let's explain this or this is why we think this was better, it was, you're a racist, you're a bigot, you're a transphobe. And I feel like you know these were these were parents that had either voted for Biden. A lot of them were minority parents. From I, what I, I was saw. actually right about to get to that. So so, so yeah, the second that. half of your question about so we just talked about Loudon and Fairfax. It was yeah. a bit of a different story. When you get down to the precinct level in Fairfax, and mm -hmm. it, this is not an exact science because mm -hmm. there are absentee votes, and unfortunately sure. in Virginia the Democrats killed the bill to allocate those early votes directly to the precinct. So. Mm -hmm. We're having to do a little bit of guesswork here, but we can know with a high degree of certainty. Yeah. This is not complete wild conjecture. Yeah. It's just that we don't have the exact numbers. But um, but we do know that at the precinct level in Fairfax County, something quite remarkable actually happened. The whiter the precinct, yeah. the more blue it trended. Really? The more diverse racially the precinct, the redder it trended. There's precincts. Um, this is in Fairfax. This is County? in Fairfax County. Okay. In Loudon, it, it was it was you know uh, the education thing uh, you know allowed for Yunkin to make a lot of inroads in some of the heavily white because Loudon's much whiter than Fairfax yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, and, and Loudon's also the the wealthiest you know um, county in the country. It's kind of like the centerpiece of the Republican collapse and and yeah, you know the suburbs yeah. over the past few years. But in Fairfax, which has been Democrat way longer than Loudon. It wasn't actually the traditionally Republican precincts in the, the outer edges of Loudoun that are very white, very wealthy, um, that actually gave Yunkin his, his huge surge in Fairfax County. And Fairfax County moved about eight or, or nine points to the right from yeah, 20 points. Significant. Yeah. It was actually the um, most urban precincts near the, the border with Alexandria and Arlington that are the, the most racially diverse. And so there was a, there's a correlation between the more racially diverse the precinct, the the redder it trended in 2021 <laughs> compared to 2020. And so like these outer Republican, and, and virtually every precinct in Fairfax County is blue at this mm -hmm. point, but traditionally Republican precincts that only flipped in the past few years, some of those actually got bluer this cycle. Mm -hmm. Whereas other precincts on the edges with Alexandria and Arlington, very racially diverse, basically it was, um, precincts that were less than 35% white um, trended over 10 points more Republican mm -hmm. in a county that only trended eight points Republican. Yeah, so it yeah. trended even more Republican than the county did. Yeah. Precincts that were less than 40% white trended about eight to 9% more Republican and precincts that were like 65 plus percent white were the ones that trended the least towards the Republicans. Yeah. And some of those precincts actually got bluer. Well, and I, I think it's interesting because one of the points I mean, obviously, like you said, education was front and center in this race. 
And typically when that's the case, Republicans don't win because they think a lot of people have this mentality that the Democrats are pro-education because they're always talking about you know, higher pay or more funding for schools. That, yeah. That's their talk. But this was a case where parents were coming forward of all ethnicities, right, yeah. of, of various income brackets, were coming forward and saying, wait a second, I don't like what the school is doing. I understand funding. I understand taking care of teachers. But I don't like what you're actually doing or teaching my kid or putting them through. Or I don't like the fact that you're, you're squeezing me out of the process. Or that the school was shut down for a year. Oh, oh, the school was shut down for a year. I sure as hell don't like the fact that when I show up to, to voice my concerns, you call me a racist. Right? So yeah. I, I want to know what options that I have. And, and Glenn Youngkin and Winsome Sears and Jason Meares and the House of Delegates candidates... We're all coming in saying, you know what we've been arguing for for a long time is that you as a parent should have more control. And I, and I feel like that resonated with a lot of voters. So even if we didn't win Loudoun or win Fairfax, we, we move the needle. Yeah, it's about the margins. So yeah. like to, to wrap up the Fairfax equation, first off, the, the, the Democrat response that, you know, they're, ultimately their trump card, no pun intended, that they tried to play at the 11th hour when everything else was gone and the numbers, they, they were seeing the same stuff I was seeing, except they had internal polling that I didn't have access to. Yeah. So the, the alarm bells were probably going off in the Democratic camp even more. Mm -hmm. um, but at the 11th hour, their, their final closing argument was, if you care about this issue, you're a racist. Yeah. Except they were making that argument to black parents, Hispanic <laughs> yeah. parents, yeah. Asian parents. Yeah. And quite frankly, it just fell flat on its face. And when you look down at the precinct level, I mean, there's precincts in Fairfax County that, I mean, trended over 20 points mm -hmm. to the right um, or, or 30 points to the right. I mean, it's one thing to lose a precinct, you know, and, and let the Democrats win over 80% in the precinct. Mm -hmm. and But it, it's another thing to lose it only 60%. Mm -hmm. And if you take, you know, deep, heavily blue precincts and yeah. that you're losing by a four or five to one margin and then you cut it down to only losing by a two or three to one margin, that adds up yeah. because it's not just one individual precinct. It's, it's all of them, you know, adding on to each other. And so, like, I think that was the story in Northern Virginia. It wasn't that we won Northern Virginia. Mm -hmm. It's that we, we ate into those margins. Mm -hmm. And not only did we eat into those margins, we ate into those margins in places that we have never mm -hmm eaten into the margins, even back when Northern Virginia was politically competitive. The places that swung the hardest to the right were the most ancestrally Democrat parts of Northern Virginia, that plus large parts of suburban Loudoun. And so like, I think that that was the story of, of you know, how the election played out in Northern Virginia. Although, as you know, we, we didn't actually really flip any seats in the House in Northern Virginia. Well, yeah, and then we had, we had some really good candidates up there that, that were running, um, you know, you know, it was Gary Pan, Harold Pion, Nick Clemente, I mean, several others that were running that ran really strong races, really hard races, good candidates. Uh, but we, we didn't quite pick up the seats. However, we did win seven seats in the House of Delegates. Mm -hmm. I think originally you'd have predicted six. Yep. Um, and I did not get La Charisse's race. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Petersburg, that was that was one. You know, Kim Smith ran a, 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 a Kim Smith. Yeah. Kim, uh, and Kim, uh, Kim Taylor. Kim Taylor. Sorry. Sorry, Kim. Sorry. Why did I say Kim Smith? Oh, I'm thinking of, I have a friend named Kim Smith. Anyways. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Kim Taylor ran a, a strong campaign down there, managed to win. So we, we've talked about some of the, you know, the, the, the bluer counties, Northern Virginia. Obviously, we did well in Virginia Beach, which has always been more of a swing area. Sometimes that's, that's the urban area in Virginia where Republicans tend to do the best. And we did better this time around. Um, picked up some seats down there. Let's talk about rural Virginia, because just like we saw, we didn't win Northern Virginia, but we moved the needle in our direction, so we didn't lose as bad. In rural Virginia, oh my gosh, like it was, 
It, I, it was I, almost like, almost, not it, not quite, but it was almost like McDonald's 2009. I mean, we, what we saw there, I, I was reading somewhere, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I was reading somewhere that I think when, obviously Trump did well in Southwest Virginia, did well in the Valley, I, I think there was one county he won by 80%. I think there was one. And if I remember right, Glenn Youngkin won over 10 counties by 80%. Like it was something where rural voters showed up. Oh, and not only that, they showed up in force. So yeah. Southwest turnout was actually kind of lagging a little bit, mm -hmm. but the, the, the valley, especially the Northern Valley, you get into Augusta, Rockingham, Page, Shenandoah, all the way up north into Winchester, Northern Piedmont, like where we are in Culpeper, mm -hmm. Madison, Rappahannock. I mean, these are heavily rural counties. Um, half the precincts in Goochland County, mm -hmm. um, you know, rural exurbs of, of the Richmond suburbs, um, half the precincts in Goochland County had over 70% turnout. Mm. Um, I mean, that's almost at presidential levels. It's yeah. not quite, but it's, I mean, it's substantially higher than it should be in an off-year election like mm -hmm. 2021 is. And so Northern Virginia... Yes, there were some some spots that we didn't get, you know, astronomical turnout. But as a whole, Northern Virginia showed up in force. And not only did they show up in force with high levels of turnout, but the people that showed up were breaking, I mean, almost records for Yunkin. I mean, mm -hmm. Culpeper County delivered about a two-to-one margin for Yunkin. And this is a county where traditionally, you know, we go into the election cycle thinking if we can get 61, 62% in Culpeper County, we're gonna be able to give our statewide candidates a shot and then the rest is gonna you know, lay on their shoulders and how they do in yeah. Hampton Roads, Virginia Beach, and, and you know, the Richmond area. I mean, Yunkin carried, in, in a county that Trump only, he still won in a landslide, right? But in a, in a county that Trump only won by 20 points here in Culpeper, Yunkin carried it by like 33. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just Culpeper, it was Orange, it was mm -hmm. Madison, it was Rappahannock, it was Falkir. Mm -hmm. Spotsylvania, he, he got about 60%, and Spotsylvania is half rural, half suburban. Yeah. I mean, it, it, these things add up. None of these are Fairfax-sized counties that have you know million-plus people. But mm -hmm. rural Virginia, individually, the counties might only have 40, 50, 30, 60, 80,000 people. Mm -hmm. But across the entire Commonwealth, they, they add up and they produce. Like, like for example, here, here, here's an example of how strong rural Virginia can be when it shows up with high turnout and high levels of Republican enthusiasm. Bedford County. Mm -hmm has a population of 80-ish thousand people. Mm -hmm. It's a medium-sized, largely rural county to the west of Lynchburg, has a little bit of suburban nature when you get right next to Lynchburg, but it's a pretty rural county. Mm -hmm. Very, very Republican county, but, but relatively small. Bedford County delivered a larger net vote margin for Glenn Youngkin than Loudoun County did for Terry McAuliffe. Wow. And, Bedford has one-fifth of the population of Loudoun County. Okay, wow. Not only that, Bedford also delivered a larger net vote margin than Prince William County, which voted five points more for McAuliffe than Loudoun did. Yeah. Another example, in Culpeper, we delivered a larger net vote margin for Glenn Youngkin than the city of Roanoke did. That's incredible. And Roanoke has twice the population of Culpeper, yeah, by the way. Yeah. Um, it, it, last cycle, if you were to add up the votes between like Culpeper and Roanoke, it, it'd easily be like ten points for so, the Democrats. So this is this is a so it sounds to me like what you're saying is based off the numbers. There's kind of three things that took place. You you had rural voters showing up in force and they were enthusiastic. Yes. You had some like maybe swing voters that were just not at all impressed with the way that Terry McAuliffe conducted himself, the Democrats conducted themselves. And they, they had core issues they were upset about, they did not like the response to their concerns, and so they flipped and they voted back 
uh, Republican this time around. And then it looks like in some areas too, you had a lot of Democrats that just, for whatever reason, they weren't excited about their ticket. They didn't you know, really care. They just didn't vote. They didn't show up. There was no there was no real strong enthusiasm over on the Democrat. I mean, is that accurate? Yeah, so, so the Democrats always are, I mean, the two things that I've heard, well, three things that I've heard the Democrats say is, one, oh, all the voters are racist yeah, and that's why yeah, we lost. In a state that, you know, Biden won by 10 by points. By 10 points. It, mathematically. Their, their new conclusion is yes. we're all racist. And mathematically, Youngkin had to have won by winning over some of those Biden yeah. voters. So what they're saying yeah. is that some of their own voters are racist yeah. because yeah. they decided to vote for a Republican for governor. Oh, and a black female for lieutenant <laughs> yeah. governor and yeah. a Hispanic oh, for well, attorney she's, general. Oh, well, she's just a mouthpiece yeah. for white supremacy, according but to Joy Reid. That's the first. It's just, it's it's hilarious on its face, especially mm -hmm. considering how many gains we made with Hispanic and black voters in Virginia. Mm -hmm. I mean, exit polling. I know that we've seen a lot of numbers, but the average of the exit polling, I would not be surprised, especially looking at the precinct level results in places like Fairfax, the Hill, mm -hmm. um, the Filipino community in Virginia Beach, mm -hmm. um, and, and black voters in, in some parts of the state, especially in Southside. Um, I mean, Youngkin probably won 15%, maybe 18% on the high end of black voters, which, yeah. it, it, which is much higher than Republicans usually win. Yeah. And he won probably 35 to 45, maybe about 40-ish percent mm -hmm. of the Hispanic vote. Which again, when you look at the totality of those numbers, that is the highest percentage of the minority vote that any Republican has won in a gubernatorial election in probably 50 or 60 years. Mm -hmm. So that was the first argument the Democrats were making. The second argument, which is, I, I like to call that the beltway brain mentality, is well, we would have won if, if the infrastructure bill had been passed before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't think of a single person that walked into the voting booth and thought to themselves, you know, I was going to vote for Terry McAuliffe, Hale Ayala, and Mark Herring, and a full Democratic ticket for the House of Delegates. Yeah. But, you know, Manchin and Cinema haven't passed the infrastructure bill in D.C. yet, so I'm going to vote for Glenn Youngkin instead. <laughs> that is the narrative yeah. that you're seeing in yeah. the Beltway right now. But the third one was is that, well, we didn't get our base to the polls. Mm. Except Terry McAuliffe got the second highest number of votes of any candidate who's ever run for governor of Virginia in history, mm -hmm. the only guy that he lost, or the, the only guy who got the, the highest number of votes was the guy he lost to. Yeah. So the idea that the so Democrats- So they can't even make the argument that, because I, I was trying to throw them a bone with maybe they didn't get their base well, out. But. So it, it's, there is some truth to that statement, but yeah. I, I'm, I'm bringing that point up to, to explain that, because I'll, I'll get into the turnout in just a second, but I, I wanted to bring that point up that, that McAuliffe got 1.6 million votes. Yeah. It's just that Glenn Youngkin got 1.66 million yeah. votes. Yeah. And because I want to bring that point up because the Democrats will try to say, well, we just either, you know, the voters are racist or it was bad things going on in D.C. or we didn't get our base to the polls. They did get their base to the polls. Mm -hmm. They just didn't get enough of their base to the polls. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, the turnout was over 60% higher than it was the first time that McAuliffe ran and won in 2013 mm -hmm. when him and Ken Cuccinelli, both between the two of them, barely got over a million votes apiece. Yeah. And this time around, it was both him and Youngkin got over 1.6 million votes. Mm -hmm. It's not like Virginia's population has grown 60% in eight years. Mm -hmm. But, but I, I'm bringing that up because there was turnout problems for Democrats. Mm -hmm. I, you look at, at Norfolk or Portsmouth, Newport News, Hampton, Richmond, Petersburg, we flipped that House district mm -hmm. because we had sky-high turnout in Dinwiddie and Chesterfield County, mm -hmm. and Democrats had abysmal turnout in the city of Petersburg. And not only did we have high turnout in Dinwiddie, we were producing margins in Dinwiddie that were the old Culpeper numbers. Yeah, we were yeah. getting 60 plus percent in Dinwiddie, and that was traditionally our goal for Culpeper. Usually in Dinwiddie, you're getting you know in the mid to high 50s mm -hmm. for a Republican in that mm -hmm. county. So so that combined allowed us to flip that that house seat in particular. But it was the same story in large parts of the state, and not just in and you know heavily black parts of the state like like Petersburg, but also in in places like Roanoke had mm -hmm. very low turnout. 
Um, even some of the white parts of the city of Richmond had, you know, heavily Democrat white parts of the city of Richmond had relatively low turnout. So it wasn't just that the Democrats didn't get, you know, their African American base to the polls. They had a problem where they were bleeding some of those voters first mm. off, and then they weren't in th exciting or, or, you know, motivating the rest of their base to show up to a large degree. And I think that that part of that reason is because, I mean, in the words of Doug Wilder, the first black governor in Virginia's history. What reason have they given them to show yeah, up? Yeah. <laughs> they take their votes for granted. And, yeah. and I, I think that, that Democrats are, are finally learning this lesson that if you just play nothing but identity politics and you don't actually speak to the needs of, an, of a voter as an individual, mm -hmm. but you're, you're putting them in a box mm -hmm. and you're saying you're only allowed to care about these issues because of your race or your gender or your age or your income or your sexual orientation and you can't care about anything else. And if you move outside that box, then you're a white supremacist. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that that narrative is just falling flat on its face. They're either alienating voters and, and pushing them into our party, and we're welcoming you know we're, we're welcoming them with open arms, mm -hmm. or they're not motivating them to show up and vote for their candidates. And mm -hmm. I mean, they paid the price on last well, Tuesday. And, and this and this brings me to kind of like the 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 final issue that I really want to talk about that I think is very important. I think a lot of people are watching very closely, and that is okay. We the voters allowed you guys to beat the odds. Nobody thought you were going to win all three statewide races, right? At least early on. When this whole race started, nobody thought yeah. Republicans are going to win Virginia. Nobody thought we were going to take back the House of Delegates. It wasn't until kind of like the 11th hour that people started thinking, oh my gosh, there's a, there's a real shot here. And, and it was because of that voter enthusiasm. And it was because we convinced other people to come over and vote for us. Now, I would say that, I mean, on a moral level, we have an obligation to, to live up to what it is that we said we were going to do and do it. However, I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you, there are going to be Republican pundits out there and analysts that say, look, you barely won. You need to be careful. Don't do anything you know, too conservative. Right? Stay at those various margins. It, but here's what I see. And again, what I want to know is, this is my instinct. Does the data back this up? My instinct is we, we campaigned on education. We did campaign on Second Amendment rights. You know, all of our candidates are pro-life. Um, all of our candidates wanted to cut taxes and lower regulations. We had better do it. Like we, and, and again, there's going to be arguments that, well, the Democrats still control the Senate. Fine. Pass it in the House and then force the Democrats to vote on it. Because what, what I'm seeing going on in Virginia right now, and, and this is what I think is, is truly powerful going forward. I remember when Democrats made the argument, and this is the this is more of the like like heavy left wing um, side of the Democrats that now is effectively in control of the party. But I remember when they made the argument that put them in charge because they believed that central planning and more government power and more laws and more regulations and more government programs was going to make us all better off financially and fiscally, and it didn't work. Then the argument was, no, no, put us in power because the planet is dying, the ice caps are melting, there will be no more polar bears. And, and it the world will out, end in 12 yeah, years. Yeah, the world will end in 12 years. And it turns out the way that they were going to save the world was by doing all the things that they wanted to do before, but now it was to save the planet. And then what happened? Well, okay, their, their predictions didn't play out. Their models didn't work. Um, it, it just, it, again, it was hyperbole, and people were like, I don't, I'm not really buying this. It's not that I'm not concerned about the planet. I'm just not really buying your solutions. And then the third argument has been, do what we want or you're a racist. And... For a while, that was working. I mean, if you look at everything within, within popular culture and what Hollywood was doing and what corporate America was doing, 
they were really giving into this narrative that like, oh my gosh, like we need to completely redo our history and Ibram X. Kendi is right, we're all horrible and, it's, and if you have any sort of problem with critical race theory, that's white fragility and you're a bigot. Like everyone was buying into this and I, and I know as an elected official, I know as someone that watches this stuff daily, I was, being, I was really concerned with the way people were just buying all of this and, and what was the solution offered? Oh, it was the same Democrat solutions. We want more power. We want more social planning of the economy. We want less property rights, more rules, more government programs, more redistribution. Everything that they've been arguing, arguing for for the past 60 years has just been repackaged based off of whatever they say is the latest crisis. And I feel like this was the first break in the dam in Virginia where that argument fell flat. It failed. In some ways, it backfired. Well, exactly, because... They were, they were coming out saying, well, if you're concerned about this, you're a racist, or this is a phony concern. But how are you and, supposed and you to had... make that argument to a black parent <laughs> yes. that lives in Richmond or lives in Northern Virginia yeah. that wants to be able to send their kid to a school that's not going to be closed for 12 months well, in the well, year? And, and it's, it's not just that. It's the idea that if you're concerned about this, that's phony outrage, and you're, you're a white supremacist. And then minority parents going, wait a second, I, I'm Indian, I'm Pakistani, I'm Korean, I'm, I'm black, I'm Hispanic, and them going... Well, you're just a mouthpiece for white supremacy now. Like calling Winsome Sears, the first black woman elected to Lieutenant Governor's office in Virginia, calling Jason Miras, you know, the, the son of Cuban immigrants, like, no, 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 you're a racist now, or you're a voice piece for white supremacy. Why? Because you don't like Democrats' tax policy, right? Because you have, you have concerns about critical race theory being taught in schools. And then you're telling us it's not being taught when we can see that it is. And, and I feel like there was a lot of people that, you know, again, they go about their daily lives. They're, they're not really all that engaged in politics. And this was the first time where all of a sudden things were happening in their kids' school. So obviously to someone that they really cared about and they're very invested in. And they were told that their concerns were phony and they were told they were a racist. And I feel like it was an eye-opening experience for a lot of people to realize that, no, a lot of these, a lot of these news outlets... Because let's face it, when someone screams something enough times, you think to yourself, well, there, there's probably something to it. And, and every media outlet and every Hollywood outlet was screaming, Republicans are racist, Republicans are fascist, Republicans are bigots. And now all of a sudden these people are going, wait a second, I, I actually understand what they're saying and I'm concerned about that too. Well, then you're a bigot. And it's like, oh no, screw you, right? I know I'm not a bigot. And I, I'm not putting up with this. I, I, I completely agree. And to, to answer your point about like, what should we do with this majority? Yeah. I mean, we should do what the voters elected us to do. So yeah. I, I know that, I mean, I, I've been in politics long enough that I've seen this argument before. And I think it's a really weak argument. This idea that, oh, we can't actually govern like conservatives because we'll lose the majority. Mm -hmm. or, or we can't push for this because, you know, the next election cycle is coming up and, you know, we've got vulnerable seats. I am way more concerned mm -hmm. about alienating the people that voted for me mm -hmm. than I am about infuriating the people that just cast a ballot against me. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, with such slim margins, because we didn't win in a landslide. Mm -hmm. we, we picked up two seats, and some mm -hmm. of them were within recount margins. See, but they use that as a justification to say that you shouldn't do conservative legislation. But, but, but my point is, is that it's actually the opposite is true. Mm -hmm. Because... We picked up seven seats, but we have a two-seat majority, and, and we have extremely slim margins. I just laid out how we only won because we turned out rural Virginia in mass, and we did 
we, we built upon the work that we've seen the last few cycles with actually making true inroads with minority voters. Mm -hmm. Those two things combined, you had an alliance of white rural voters and minority urban and suburban voters, and also some white suburban voters as well, mm -hmm. although Democrats are still dominating that category largely. Mm -hmm. But you had this alliance between these two groups that elected a Republican governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general, and seven plus seats in the House of Delegates to give us a slim two-seat majority in the House. If we don't deliver on the things that we've been promising them, if we don't deliver on education reform, tax reform, mm -hmm. if we don't deliver on, on restoring uh, the Second Amendment rights that have been under attack in Virginia the last two years or four years in the mm -hmm. case of Mark Herring's uh, outgoing administration for Attorney General, we're going to lose back some of those seats because we're going to be depressing our own basis turnout. I just explained how Democrats lost Virginia in part, not entirely, but in part, because their own base has been depressed. Because in the words of mm -hmm. Doug Wilder, what reason do black voters have in Virginia to elect Democrats? They have absolutely no reason. Democrats have been banking their votes for years and delivering absolutely nothing in return. Mm -hmm. A simple drive through Petersburg or Newport News will prove that to you. Mm -hmm. they've, done, they've delivered nothing mm -hmm. in exchange for decades of loyalty and obedience. Mm -hmm. If we do the exact same thing to our base, mm -hmm and we simply bank their votes in rural Virginia, and we don't actually deliver on the promises that we, that we campaigned on, mm -hmm. we should not be surprised when turnout falls, margins fall, and we go back to under 50% margins in places like Culpeper, we go back to under 60% margins in places like Dinwiddie, we go back to, to under 70% turnout in places like Goochland. Mm -hmm. We can't afford to alienate our own base. Mm -hmm. I, I think that it'd be morally repugnant to promise the electorate that we're going to do something and not do it. But I also think strategically it is foolish. Well, and I look, I think that's the I think that's the important component here is that you know, I, I've gotten in trouble with members of my own party because my argument has always been we say we believe these things, we campaign on these things, we should do these things. And and that's the the moral imperative. The moral imperative is that even if it does cost you seats, you promised you would do it, so go do it. And, and I think that, for me, that is a sufficient argument. But for some people in politics, it's not. They, for they, many people, yeah, it's for not. Many people are, it's a component, but in, in order to get sufficiency, they want to know that the data backs that up. And that's what I think is so important to understand is that the, the, there's, there needs to be a shift in mindset on how we look at this. And that is everybody that voted for us, whether it was our traditional base or whether it was people that said, you know what? I'm intrigued by the policies that you're talking about with things like school choice. And I'm going to give you a chance. And I'm going to give you a chance. You better deliver on it. Yes. And, and, I, and I think that, again, the, the, moral, the moral imperative is sufficient for some of us. But what is interesting to me is that now we have a good case, both from a moral perspective as well as from a, a data analytics perspective, that if, if you actually want to maintain a majority, then you got to show the people that elected you that you're going to do something with it based off of what you campaigned on and what you said you believed in. Absolutely. All right, well, listen, I, I wanna thank you for, uh, for coming on. And you know, again, give us give your like, Twitter handle and whatnot because I know you, a lot of, you put out a lot of uh, you know, <laughs> materials, predictions, modeling, and all of that. And, and in Virginia, we have an election every single year. Oh, yeah. Right, every <laughs> single year we have an election going on. We got midterms coming up. I'm sure you're gonna be doing a lot of work and modeling on that. We got new lines being drawn. Redistricting. So where, where do people follow you um, in order to get yeah, that Yeah, so it's, um, I, I'm really active on Twitter. It's at Christian Hines. It's a weird way to spell it though. It's H-E-I-E-N-S. Christian spelled the same way it usually is. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm really active on social media. I've 
Um, you know, I, I think this model that because I was publicly putting out mm -hmm. um, tweets the last oh, yeah, few days yeah. and weeks leading up to the election, and I remember getting a lot of flack from people that were like, "Oh, you're crazy. Yunkin doesn't have a chance." Mm -hmm. And I, I first I felt that way because for so long I've been <laughs> predicting that Republicans would just lose and lose and lose yeah. in Virginia, and they had been. But I, I mean, the numbers don't lie. Like I said at the beginning of our conversation, at some point you've got to take you know your your political opinions aside. Don't don't set them aside. You know when it comes to voting, yeah, right? Yeah, but sure. like in terms of trying to figure out what's going to happen, you know, set those aside and just look at the numbers. And I did that, and for yeah. once I was stunned. I was like, oh my gosh, we actually have a shot. Yeah. And yeah. I, I you know I dared to go out there and say I think Youngkin's going to win by one point eight eight percent, and he won by one point nine three. So <laughs> if, if if you're interested in you know following me for you know, election takes. I know redistricting's coming up. You got the midterms, like you said. I, you know, I'm a geek when it comes to all sorts of stuff like that. So if you like election <laughs> election stats, I'd I'd love to uh, to give you you know have have you give me a follow and yeah. Um, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate oh, it. No, it's it's been it's been our pleasure. I really appreciate it. Uh, the other thing too, I just want to you know push out there is obviously thank you very much for watching the podcast. If you like what you see on here, make sure that you you like. You share if you're on a podcast, if you're on Apple Podcast or a Spotify, you know, leave us a review. It really helps get that information out there. And again, the biggest thing that I would say to anybody that is happy about the election results that we just had is one of the things that we do on making the argument is again equipping you with arguments. So you are going to see people, whether it be friends, whether it be pundits, whether it be news sources, um, you're going to have you're going to have elected representatives that are going to try to tell you that the only way that we can maintain this majority that we've just won is if we shy away from what we believe. And you need to be able to fire back, not just with the moral argument for why we need to do what we said, but now the numbers and the data that also justify that, that say that, yeah, that thing that we just kind of intuitively know is the right thing to do is also the smart thing to do politically. So once again, thank you very much for joining us. I'm Nick Freitas with Making the Argument, and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.